0: Hello, welcome and thanks for listening to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. This is the second episode of Easter Term and the 17th overall episode in our series of brief conversations with academics who come to present at our weekly seminar. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Lewis DeFrates, I'm a PhD student at Sydney Sussex College here in Cambridge and I'm thrilled to be speaking today to Dr Michelle Trashfield, a lecturer in United States History at the University of Birmingham. Dr. Treshfield is a cultural and intellectual historian with an interest in the history of science and technology, and especially its relation with knowledge production and racial formation in the 20th century United States. She completed her dissertation titled Half and Halves and Racially Ambiguous Others, Social Scientific Experts and the Problem of Multiracials in the Modern US, 1920 to 1965, at Vanderbilt University in 2016, and is currently working on a book manuscript building off of that research, Prospectively titled, What Lies Between Social Science, Medicine, and the Prehistory of Multiracial America. It's an exciting and important area of research, and I'm very glad that she has come to speak to us and to me today. Dr. Tressel, thanks very much and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, I'm excited to be with you.
0: Great. So, we're going to talk a bit about your paper, uh, a little bit about your wider research, and some of your broader experiences as a historian and an academic. So, your paper is titled, It's in the Blood. Physical anthropology, genetics, and the making of America's triracial isolates, nineteen fifty to nineteen sixty. Could you tell us a little bit about it?
1: Yes. Um, so I've actually, funny enough, been playing with um, the the title in in the in the talk today. So it will touch on those issues, but won't exactly um, kind of center around there. So what I, what I'm doing as I work on the book project is I. And as you will uh, appreciate, when you are doing a history that doesn't quite finish, mm-hmm. uh, lots of things happen between when you finish the dissertation and when you go to the book. Um, and so today's talk is really me trying to grapple with the kind of unfinished history of the populations that I study, uh, mm-hmm. especially around their quest to be recognized as Native American. Okay. Um, so today's talk will look at the role of physical anthropology, but also eugenics, um, and, and the, the role that these early work had on the identity construction of these communities. But then we'll also look at what the DNA testing boom has done in terms of contemporary quests for identity recognition um, for these communities. So really trying to put those two periods in conversation with each other to think about how do changes in, in scientific understandings of race influence the kind of political and social possibilities mm-hmm. in the claims that different populations are able to make about themselves?
0: Right. And could you talk us a little uh, a little bit about, you know, the changing uses of that scientific knowledge? Like, how have groups used it? How has it been imposed on different, like, tri-racial groups?
1: Yes, absolutely, right? So one of the, the first... Uh, uh, communities of scholars to come to tri-racial communities are eugenicists and mm-hmm. they're really concerned about the threat of racial mixing um, and so because the the kind of White racial purity loomed so large in the way in which they these communities were conceptualized. There is real uh, focus on the kind of degraded nature of multiraciality, right? The the kind of uh, moral turpitude of anyone who would be willing to participate in such a union, mm-hmm. um, and so that really becomes the kind of central kind of conception of these communities that they're that they're triracially mixed, that it breeds a kind of mental instability, mental degeneration moral degeneration, right? Right. That is threatening to white racial purity because as we know, right, um, people of mixed race ancestry do not present with the easily classifiable type. So what, you know, unsuspecting whites could be tricked. Um, and, and and marry with these people um, and and then when you get into the area of physical anthropology right it's really uh, by the 1950s heavily influenced by a, an actual move away from race as kind of rooted in hair texture or skin color which is what you find in these kind of earlier studies um, the idea that race is about pop uh, differences across gene frequencies of populations uh heavily influences the way that scientists come the reasons that scientists come to these communities in the 1950s. 1950s, And and what they're interested in thinking about um, as a communities who have these long histories of genetic isolation as well. So one of the things about these communities is that not only are they believed to exist as some kind of tripartite racial um, symbiosis, they're genetically or they're believed to be genetically isolated. Right. So there's histories of of inbreeding to maintain that kind of um Intermediate status. Um, And so the uh, physical anthropologists of the 1950s come to these communities because um, this inbreeding has bred a host of illnesses. Like... Polydactylyism, mm-hmm. uh, albinism—that these scientists want to study, and they believe that these populations would be a useful terrain through which to work out those issues, yeah. as well as uncovering something interesting about well, what's going on in 1950s America? We're on the precipice of a civil rights movement. How might the the kind of social possibilities of a triracial community be affected by mm-hmm. these kind of new claims by Black Americans in particular?
0: Right. Okay. And could you talk a little bit more, just because um, I don't know much about this at all, the tri- these triracial communities? are they like regionally specific to one part of the United States and yeah where what is it yeah what's their origin right
1: how did they that's a, that's a really great question. right? So the, the origin of these communities, and I should you know say most of these communities, uh, many of them in the present day, right, wish to be recognized as Native and have long since made claims to that identity okay. but have been dismissed as kind of tri-racial communities who want to use the kind of ambiguity of racial mixing to avoid the stigma of Blackness. and So okay. that's kind of where yeah. the central tension lies. And in that, the, the history of, of Native Americans is really central. St- to the identity formation of these communities. Mostly because with the Indian removes of the 1830s, mm-hmm. de, um, there develops this notion that there are no pure race, plural Indians east of the Mississippi, okay. which is where these populations find their origins. Mm-hmm. And so tri-racial isolates are a particular phenomenon of the eastern State uh, United States, particularly concentrated around the Appalachian region. Wow. Um, so in areas that have um, historically been geographically isolated, which would allow them to kind of protect their kind of racial in-betweenness.
0: Okay. And and you talked a little bit just at the start there about, you know, these researchers and coming people who are interested in physical anthropology and eugenics, they're coming in and conducting this research, but you also spoke about members of these communities using that research or contesting that research as part of their own recognition like yeah to establish like recognition of themselves as an independent group could you talk about that a little bit
1: more yes absolutely so when you could get a scientific expert to kind of come on your side and to reinforce your identity claims it meant the world of difference mm-hmm. in terms of the like the long-term success of these groups um and one of the um most standout examples are the uh, present-day nanticoke indians of delaware who since um you know the late 19th century had actively worked to enshrine their identity as native but increasingly came up against efforts by the state to circumscribe them as, as black. Um, and so at the same time that the community was was um, actively forming a, a Nanticoke Indian Association to better organize and collectivize their interests, Frank Speck, who was an anthropologist with the University of Pennsylvania, came to produce a study on the community. And because he found and believed that the Nanticoke had retained um, vestiges of their kind of historical native identity, he invested in them, um, teaching them history, teaching them about their lost languages mm-hmm. so that they could better leverage their claims. And right. so um, Speck isn't giving wholeheartedly a kind of cultural identity to the Nanticoke, but he is reinforcing and helping to kind of legitimate yeah. efforts that are already um, there. So it is a kind of um, symbiotic relationship, right? Mm-hmm. They, they're working together. And, and and for that, the Nanticoke were able to, to draw resources from the state of Delaware and ultimately kind of get a, a greater recognition as Native.
0: Right, okay. And you see, so as I understand it, you see this kind of recognition specifically linked to the emergence of, like, these different kind of technologies of analyzing and, like different types of research, right? Yes, yes, okay.
1: absolutely. Right, so Frank Speck is particularly interesting because he's practicing a type of uh, kind of participatory uh, salvage anthropology. So in addition to studying uh, the communities, which he's not doing as a kind of um, you know impartial outside person, he's actively working in the communities to help in some instances, preserve the kind of cultural remnants that he encounters, but in many instances, helping to actually engender culture so right. that he can then study and preserve that right yeah. so um you know uh teaching about uh, native art practices uh mm-hmm. teaching languages teaching about history he's doing that work and then documenting the ways in which the communities are taking that up as a as a, this kind of feedback loop in terms of of cultivating a documentary record mm-hmm. for these communities that is going to be really useful as the 20th century goes on yeah
0: and as the 20th century goes on, you talked at the start about it being open-ended. Could you talk about how, yeah, I guess this this specific historical moment and this like emergence of, you know, I guess this kind of this work, this social science, like what effect did it have as the century continued?
1: Yeah, so, you know, once the, um, uh, the civil rights movement kind of opens up new opportunities for being, right, and we're thinking about... Uh, The civil rights movement leading into pan Indian movements, leading into kind of multiracial movements. You see the kind of loosening of those strict racial barriers, the monoracialism that really characterizes that first half of the 20th century, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly the prevalence of the one drop rule. And with that, you see these communities more willingly want to uh, or take more active steps to kind of enshrine and to seek public recognition for their kind of inward identity. Um, But you get a lot of limitations. And, And one of the things, um, that it that complicates particularly the 1990s when many of these efforts take place is the kind of historical perseverance of kind of older ways of racial thinking mm-hmm. so when communities for instance uh, go to the federal government and they say we wish to be recognized as native people you have to submit documentation yeah. what do you do when all of your documentation say that you're a mulatto or yeah. you are color mm-hmm. right you lack The kind of evidentiary proof to make that claim. And in some instances, you see in several of the communities that I study, them actually submitting those reports as evidence. Because even then, even if they're being called black, they're also being called native. Right. So it's about kind of like which description wins out. But in many instances, you are, you know, you're documentarily erased Um, you you do not have the kind of um, evidentiary record that we might associate with a kind of tribe of the West. Um, And so communities have have, uh, gone a number of ways, right? So most recently, the most recent development is that the Monacan Indians of Virginia were, um, through a congressional bill, were granted federal recognition in January of 2018. And and that was on the heels of a 19-year process. Yeah. Um, so a, a really major thing. Other other communities are looking at DNA, mm-hmm. right? Can we take a DNA test to prove our ancestry and to use that to leverage a, a kind of wider recognition? Okay. Which I think is probably the most one of the most fraught, right? But one of for many people, one of the most promising mm-hmm. uh, avenues when you don't have that documentary evidence yeah. to back it up.
0: Yeah. Like DNA is obviously a complicated issue itself around right. like identification, but when that's all you can resort to, yeah. Like, But then, so, and and the argument is that this work in the 1950s and and the early 1960s, that's still crucial, right? Right, yes,
1: especially the the kind of term triracial isolate, Mm -hmm. Uh, right? So in in, in, uh, the the community that I'll talk about today, the Ramapo uh, Indians, um, they the the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, finds that they fail to qualify criterion A. It's actually several criterion, but the, the most significant one is criterion A, which is consistent outside recognition mm-hmm. as a native group. Right, and yeah. it's that work of the nineteen fifties. It's the work of the eugenicists yeah. that the the BIA anthropologists are pointing to to say, hey, like no, at this time they said you were a triracial isolate, nice. which is a people of color who have native ancestry, but not necessarily a native entity. Okay, um, and and you know, and that distinction matters, but also it matters the type of people who are coming and making those types of conclusions, which is something that you don't get enough, at least I would argue it, um, when you get the kind of um, hearings on these types of matters. There's not enough recognition of the fact that these materials are produced during a historical period where the presumption of blackness was thought to preclude the possibility of any other identity.
0: But like you're saying, it's still so important. Right, <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. These are the tools you've got to rely on. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess we'll move on to a couple of general questions sure. just to close out. We could talk about this all day. <laughs> I suppose we are be a seminar in a bit. Um, what's a book or an article that you've read in the last 12 months say, that got you excited, either about the state of field or your own work?
1: Um, I've, I've really enjoyed Ibrahim Kendi's stamp from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was well done, I mean it's a, it is a big piece of work, but I thought that it had um, just so many uh, interesting arguments and important things about the ways in which kind of like racial identity and racial knowing, um, these kind of long histories, um, so I, I've, I've really enjoyed that work.
0: Yeah, great. Um, is a a weird one as an Americanist who was educated in and until recently worked solely in the United States and you came to Birmingham last year?
1: Mm. uh, September 2017. 2017.
0: Okay yeah so what strikes you as like some differences or similarities or yeah in understandings of American history in the United Kingdom like institutionally or at a student level compared to working in the U.S.?
1: I am I continue to be struck by the ways in which students at a level right know the civil rights movement so when i get it so my students don't always come to me with like this broader understanding of u.s history but they know the civil rights movement really well um which i think creates like really interesting um opportunities to talk about race in different ways um it also um allows us to kind of have like some interesting discussions about the kind of nature of u.s racism because i think the good thing is right they come kind of primed and ready to to really hear what i have to offer Um, but at the same time that's a particular snapshot of the u.s yeah um that um it, it it has and has not moved on right mm-hmm. in, in in really interesting ways. Um, so I'm I'm always interested to see kind of my students' understanding of America as refracted through that experience because it is like very common. Like more yeah. most of the students I see have studied the American Civil Rights Movement and so come yeah. to me wanting to like I want to know more about Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's been really good.
0: That was exactly my experience yeah. as well. And I think yeah, I think I did the New Deal in the US in the thirties and that was a completely white story the way it was taught and mm-hmm. then the civil rights and the presumption is that everything's kinda of static before that as right. well. Yeah. yeah. That's fascinating, yeah. So um, what's the most interesting place that you've been for research?
1: Oh, that's really great. Uh, So I did do research. I went to study the Monacan Indians of Virginia, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to go to their kind of cultural – they created a whole museum to kind of teach about um, their tribe. And so I ended up going to a powwow. Um, And in the middle of Virginia, like this isolated place, like the GPS just stopped – registering where I was um, so that was definitely, it was fascinating and I got to see so many different people and it really um, and it was really early in my PhD work and it really challenged me on, you know I I, you know, I think one of the interesting things about my work and interesting tensions is that when we think about race, it's, it's hard not to have preconceived notions about what you think certain populations are supposed to look like sure. and so yeah. to be at that powwow and to see so many different representations so many different kind of common on what it meant to be Indian um it, it changed my brain right yeah. and I was really fortunate enough to do it early in the project because I, I think I needed that reckoning yeah. uh, because you know sometimes you sit with your books about your subject mm-hmm. and then to kind of go into face um and be in the in the in the midst of of those negotiations I think was really yeah. powerful that's
0: really important yeah and just to close out, the question we ask everyone, it feels like an awkward transition from that last answer to this, but what's your favourite album?
1: Ooh, that's a good one. Um, oh, so tough. What will I say? <laughs> My favourite album. Mm. I like Songs in the Key of Life, Stevie Wonder. Mm. That's, that's a jam. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a great album, yeah. Mm. Okay. Michelle Trussfield, thanks very much for talking to me today.
1: You're very welcome, my pleasure.
0: Very much looking forward to the seminar uh, this evening, and yeah, really excited to see how the book turns out, this idea of the open-endedness that you're struggling with at the moment. I'm sure it's going to really turn into some fascinating written work. Thanks very much. Thank you. Cheers.